Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clyde Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 359th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Hey, we got a lot of news to report. We sure do. Welcome back, Chuck, and hello, everybody. Our lead story this morning is about advocating for clinical documentation integrity. It's a topic of which you're quite passionate. That's right. Tammy Combs with AHIMA will be sharing an update on AHIMA's advocacy of CDI. Indeed. Tammy's going to report on how AHIMA is working to provide best practice resources for CDI. That makes sense. After all, Tammy is AHIMA's director of HIM Excellence. She is indeed. And speaking of excellence, especially in the field of social determinants of health, Helen Fink-Samnick is going to be joining us later in the broadcast. And Lori Johnson is standing by to report on the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting taking place at this very hour at CMS headquarters in Baltimore. We have much news to report during today's live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and we begin with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to a live webcast titled Untangling Cardiovascular Surgery, New Approach to ICD-10 PCS Coding. It's this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Save $25 when you enter the coupon code Tuesday. To register, click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, and I was working on a client when I noticed huge charity write-offs. I asked the CFO, and he said that they had a new presumptive charity policy based on zip codes. If the patient lived in a certain zip code, then their balances were written off with the presumption they qualified for charity. No means testing, no scoring, no need to file for a charity application. While this takes it to an extreme, in many in many nonprofit healthcare providers, a charity care write-off transaction code is used many in many cases in which the patient has not even filed a charity application. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or PPACA, created a new provision in Section 501 of the Internal Revenue Code. That section, which applies to facilities licensed as hospitals under the state law, contains new requirements for uncompensated care. The law also imposed new reporting requirements on hospitals. The four main requirements that hospitals must meet in order to maintain their tax-exempt status are, one, they have to perform a community health needs assessment. Two, they have to create and apply financial assistance policies. Three, they have to have limitations on charges. And four, follow certain billing and collection practices. The PPACA requires a financial assistance policy that includes the following requirements. One, eligible criteria for financial assistance and whether such assistance includes three, free or discounted care. Two, the basis of calculating amounts charged to patients and the permitted methods used to determine the amounts generally billed. Four, the method for applying financial assistance and what documentation will be used and determine that qualification. Four, the uh, actions of the organization will take in the event of non-payment. And finally, the measures to widely publicize financial assistance policy within the community. These requirements apply to all medically necessary care, not just care provided in the emergency department. In addition, many states like Florida pay disproportionate share hospital or dish payments based on the amount of charity care. 
the state may define charity care differently than PPACA. Charity care in Florida for this dish purposes is for patients whose family income for the 12-month period preceding the determination is less than 200% of the federal poverty level, and in no case shall the hospital's charges for a patient whose family exceeds four times the federal poverty level uh, be considered for charity. What does that have to do with the new revenue recognition rules? ASC 606 requires the hospitals to remove both charity care and certain self-pay revenue from financial statements. These new revenue recognition rules will make it even harder for hospitals to track and report charity care properly. Make sure your facility is in compliance with charity rules and regulations. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's March 5th, 2019. This is day one of the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting taking place right now at CMS headquarters in Baltimore. But at this hour, you're listening to the 359th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Have you tried a HEMA's code check service? Get answers to all your tough ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, CPT, or HICS-PICS questions straight from the trusted leader in health information, AHIMA. Approved staff members have 24-7 access to the newly designed portal. There they can organize a library of solutions, receive status updates for outstanding questions, and gain insight into knowledge gaps. AHIMA's code check service is built on the experience of more than 90 years of coding excellence, and is staffed by credentialed, experienced coders. You can trust your questions with AHIMA, a recognized leader in HIM knowledge. Visit ahima.org slash codecheck to discover how your organization can benefit from AHIMA's expert coding support. Forbes magazine recently reported on a subject of social determinants of health. According to Forbes, one of the nation's largest Blue Cross Blue Shield companies is now expanding its delivery of food to 40 zip codes considered to be food deserts, and those food deserts exist in Chicago and Dallas. It's a positive example of payers addressing social determinants for health. Here now to comment on this social determinants for health is Alan Fink-Sandwick. Good morning, Alan. Hey, Alan, this sounds like a very positive step forward. It's an incredible step forward, Chuck, along with so many others that have come up um, that we read about in the media. Our industry knows the social determinants of health is a priority. There is no doubt that every organization has some program, initiative, collaboration, grant, or merger in the works, if not all of the above. The topic keeps healthcare leaders up at night and is front and center at every industry event, including the Commission for Case Management Certification um, New World Symposium Conference at the Gaylord National Harbor outside of Washington, D.C. that I attended last week. Now, those ICD-10Z codes I so love to discuss, well, they were an important first step for providers. They were emphasized at several sessions, including one on case management documentation by legal case management expert Lynn Muller. For those still catching up, those codes Z55 to 65 focus on potential health hazards related to socioeconomic and psychosocial circumstances. While all relatively, um, while relatively all-encompassing, two 
key issues remain missing from the ADA categories and subcategories, transportation and food insecurity. Clients with transportation access risk have 41% more excess days in the hospital. 3.6 million people miss appointments annually from transportation issues. 41 million people in the U.S. are food insecure, one out of eight households. Both issues were recognized in the keynote by Vice Admiral Dr. Jerome Adams, Surgeon General of the United States. Now, payers are stepping up to assure reimbursement for both issues. Uh, Uber Health and Lyft have expanded their contracts with payers and providers, plus their product lines. Lyft contracted with Logisticare, while Uber Health has joined with Ambulance and MyV Transportation, an ambulance and wheelchair van provider. Um, phase two of that Blue Cross Institute programming will be live in April for the 40 zip codes around Chicago and Dallas identified as food deserts. And when Forbes gets in on the story, well, you know it's big doings financially. Food Q will offer consumers easy access to affordable, nutritious foods for $10 a month with a $6 delivery charge per meal. Now, this is a meaningful move for any person with a diet-related chronic condition especially those with obesity prevalence who are currently 20% or more in every state. United Healthcare is advocating with CMS to add transportation and food insecurity to the ICD-10Z codes. That announcement just out over the last week. There is force in numbers. The payer is aligning with NCQA and the National Association of Community Health Centers to advocate with CMS to implement these codes. And optimism is strong. They will be approved by 2020. It's been one year, exactly a year, since the American Hospital Association announced how non-clinical documentation would be accepted to substantiate coding for the presence of social determinants and this call to action emphasizing accountability by the entire interprofessional team along with the physician documentation that has been so um, long accepted. However, the documentation by the non-clinical members of the team is slow going. It's a $64 million question to know how many organizations are leveraging this option to share, to capture their share of reimbursement. Based on the number of case managers who sat open mouth and wide eyed when I discussed the topic, then snapped pictures of my Z code slides uh, with their smartphones, we got a ways to go. Lifelong learning continues to be the mantra for every healthcare professional and organization. To assure financial sustainability and longer-term survival, organizations have to keep documenting on these topics. They have to keep their coding coalitions evolving and meeting regularly with CDI and revenue cycle specialists, case management, nursing, physicians, and rehabilitation professionals on board. They have to stay up to date on the other new initiatives happening across zip codes in the U.S. The the entire workforce must stay up to speed to capture revenue streams like this. Only then can organizations keep their eye on the social determinants of health reimbursement prize. Thanks, Ellen. That was nationally recognized expert on social determinants of health, Ellen Fink-Samnick. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you very much, Ellen, for that insight. Today is day one of the CMS Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting taking place at this very hour at CMS headquarters in Baltimore. Here now with a live report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Yes, the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting is getting underway this morning. Please be aware that the updated schedule has procedures continuing until tomorrow morning 
and today's meeting will conclude at 1 o'clock p.m. As March 6th meeting um, begins with the procedures, there will also be 21 diagnosis topics. You will find the agendas and the information to listen or watch the meeting in the handouts tab. Please note there's also, there's also not been any request for new diagnosis codes or new technology procedures for implementation April 1st, 2019. The next deadline is for comments on the new diagnosis and procedures um, proposals, and that date is April 5th, 2019. Also, proposed rule for inpatient prospective payment system fiscal year 20 will be, be released in April with final rule scheduled for August 1st, 2019. That proposed rule should have references to the finalized fiscal year 2020 diagnosis and procedure codes. So far this morning, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has presented that the Section HX conversation will be held during the September 2019 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. Because they're a little pressed for time um, during this meeting, they decided to table that conversation, although there will be some information on their website. They had quite a long um, presentation with regards to the cerebral embolic protection during transcatheter aortic valve replacement. They have projected that currently there are 100,000 cases done now, and there will be over 300,000 performed by 2025. There is a, they had a clinical discussion on stroke, as well as a clinical presentation on the transcatheter aortic valve intervention, and there were two devices that they compared. One was the Sentinel CPS, and the other was TriGuard 3. They're, they're talking about protection of the three branches, which include the innominate, the left carotid, and the subclavian. They, this device is removed at the end of the procedure, and it has a new technology application for fiscal year 2021, and the audience seemed to support option number three, at least as of the moment. The next up was a discussion with regards to a medication called Elzonaris. This has a new technology application for 2020, and this medication is used for treatment of highly aggressive blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, which is a hematologic cancer. It's estimated that 100 to 150 patients per year would be treated with this medication. With that, I will turn it back to Erica. Thank you, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thanks very much, Lori. And Lori, stand by because we're going to circle back and get an update from you uh, later in the broadcast on the latest from the CMS Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting taking place right at this hour at CMS headquarters in Baltimore. Our lead story this morning is about the advocacy of CDI. It's a project that's being undertaken by AHIMA. Now, as CDI industry expands beyond the traditional inpatient setting, AHIMA is working very hard to provide best practice resources for stakeholders from across a continuum of care. 
Here now with an update is the Director of HIM Excellence, Tammy Combs. Good morning, Tammy. Welcome to the program. Boy, this seems to be quite an undertaking that he was doing. Absolutely. Thank you, Chuck, and hello, everyone, and thank you for allowing me to participate in today's show. So I want to talk about the resources AHIMA has available to support our best practice standards in the clinical documentation improvement industry. AHIMA is an advocate for the use of best practice standards, so as a result of this, AHIMA offers several tools to help guide CDI professionals in following the best practice guidance across the continuum of care. Now, some of the tools that I'd like to discuss include our practice briefs, toolkits, webinars, articles, and some tip sheets. So let us begin by reviewing some of the practice briefs that are available within the AHIMA body of knowledge. One of the most widely utilized practice briefs is the Guidelines for Achieving a Compliant Query Practice. This practice brief describes a compliant query process from both the inpatient and outpatient perspectives. And this practice brief was just updated this year, and that was done with AHIMA and ACTUS. Another very popular practice brief is the clinical validation, the next level of CDI. This was also updated this year. And in this practice brief, it describes the clinical validation process, including tips that focus on education, denials management, second level reviews, and query escalation. Now, as we all know, physician engagement is crucial to the success of a CDI program. For this reason, the practice brief impacts um, impact of physician engagement on clinical documentation impro improvement programs was created. This practice brief includes information on the role of a physician, the benefits of physician involvement, education strategies, and there are also tables that include metrics to help measure the engagement level of physicians. Toolkits are also within the body of knowledge and are larger documents. They're more comprehensive than the practice briefs. There are currently four toolkits that focus on CDI efforts, and there's a fifth one that will be released soon. So the current toolkits include a CDI toolkit, outpatient CDI toolkit, inpatient query toolkit, and the CDI encoding collaboration in denials toolkit. The CDI toolkit brings a comprehensive perspective that's applied to all CDI programs. The Outpatient CDI Toolkit, as the title suggests, focuses on the elements of a successful outpatient CDI program. The CDI and Coding Collaboration and Denials Toolkit takes a look at the denial process from both a CDI and coding perspective. It includes how to write an appeal letter and has some sample appeal letters. The AHIMA Inpatient Query Toolkit is full of various query templates to help guide the development of a compliant query. And the soon-to-be-released to be toolkit is our Outpatient Query Toolkit, which will have templates that are based on some scenarios that are seen in the outpatient arena. There are also webinars that are released throughout the year that focus on various CDI topics. And we have a fantastic new webinar series called Diving Into Documentation. And this series consists of 30-minute presentations that are released each month and um, focus on some of the best practice documents that AHIMA is working on. Within the body of knowledge, there are also tip sheets available and um, that focus on CDI. These include an ICD-10 CMPCS documentation tip sheet and a skilled nursing facility tip sheet. 
And there are also numerous articles that focus on CDI best practices. All of those are housed within the body of knowledge. So I hope you take the time to review these valuable resources that can be a support and guide you as you create, expand, and maintain a successful CDI program and follow the industry best practices. Thank you. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thank you, Tammy. And I have to tell you, I refer to these often, although I'm not sure that I looked at the outpatient CDI one. I'm going to do so right after this uh, podcast. That was Tammy Combs. Tammy is a HEMAS Director of Health Information Management Practice Excellence. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thanks very much, Tammy, for that uh, excellent report. And speaking of excellent reports, now is the time for our very popular segment here on Talk 10 Tuesday called Talk Back. And once again, here is Dr. Erica Reamer. Erica, your Talk Back dovetails very nicely with our lead story this morning, doesn't it? I hope so. A few weeks ago, Ron Hirsch brought to my attention, as is his custom, a False Claims Act complaint and settlement from February involving Prime Healthcare Services, a for profit healthcare system on the heels of another mega multi-million dollar settlement from August. I'm not a lawyer, and I get a little lost in the legal mumbo-jumbo. Since there is a settlement, but it doesn't seem as though all of the complaints were stipulated to, I'm still going to refer to the points as allegations, but buckle in, this is going to be mind-boggling. The allegations were that there was, one, intentional upcoding to wrongfully increase the MSDRG payments, two, a mandate that patients be admitted as opposed to being placed in outpatient status for observation services. Three, deliberate premature discharge to maximize profits. And four, refusal to readmit patients to prevent incurring a Medicare readmission penalty. I'm going to focus in on the clinical documentation piece for you, but I think the other alleged actions add credence to the accusations and are really just unbelievable. The intentional upcoding was that the staff was all but forbidden from diagnosing anything but conditions associated with high reimbursement MSDRGs. The document stated that the caregivers were encouraged to add absent complications or comorbidities to their diagnoses and that CDCs used tactics designed to humiliate physicians and threaten their job security. The CDS teams were direct employees of the offending healthcare system, and the allegation was that their goal was to ensure that the doctors select diagnoses to fit specific MSDRGs to generate the highest reimbursement for the hospital. It goes on to say that the CDS team inserts itself between physicians' diagnoses and coding in concurrent review, and that the query is often quotation marks, hand delivered to the physician by a CDS team member who explains coding definitions of higher reimbursement MSDRGs in order to inform and steer the physician's diagnosis, close quote. They reference the CDS's engaging in informative explanations where the recalcitrant physician would be publicly and loudly admonished and belittled. The provider would be warned that their job is in jeopardy if they continue to diagnose patients with conditions that result in lower level reimbursement. The turnaround time for queries was reduced to 14 days, and there was a zero-tolerance rule for noncompliance with closing queries in a favorable fashion. As I said last week, I have no problem with queries being considered part of the medical record and non-response being grounds for suspension. However, it is completely unacceptable to mandate that the provider agree. 
sign and symptoms DRGs were explored for better principal diagnoses. Who hasn't done that? The issue is when the provider is not permitted to defer. Sometimes syncope is just syncope. This complaint is a blueprint for how not to do CDI. In fact, one of the first things I noticed was that their acronym was CDS for Clinical Documentation Specialists. That's good because if this is really how they were practicing CDI, there was no integrity going on here. I also want to say that since they didn't have their day in court, as far as I can tell, and since I did not witness any of this personally, I cannot confirm that the behaviors laid out actually occurred. But for those of you who were born just this morning, I will state for the record, you can't tell a provider what to diagnose. That's called leading. Although it is typical that CDI endeavors often increase reimbursement, that is not and should not be the goal. The goal is accurately depicting how sick and complex the patient is. It just so happens that it often results in higher reimbursement. I have no provider with giving, giving the provider. I have no problem with giving the provider education, but there should never be bullying them into more favorable documentation. And you can't coerce a provider to answer a query in any particular way, even if you are 100% sure you know the answer. For anyone who needs more explanation than this, I refer you to the 2019 update of AHIMA and ACTUS combined practice brief on guidelines for achieving a compliant query practice that Tammy just mentioned in her piece. Thanks, Ron, for the entertainment, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Erica. And now let's check back with Lori Johnson, who's been monitoring the CMS Coordination and Maintenance Committee taking place at this very hour at CMS headquarters in Baltimore. Lori, what's the latest, and can we expect this meeting to continue tomorrow for another day? Yes, the meeting will continue tomorrow. There's, um, as I said before, 21 diagnosis topics as well as the continuation of the procedures. They have talked about the administration of Venclexta, which is, and this medication has a new technology application for 2020. It's used for treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. It's an oral medication. And there have been some concerns raised about having specific codes for specific medications added into ICD-10 PCS. And um, it's encouraged that if this is the way you feel, that you would include that in your comments regarding procedures. Um, they've also talked about low-dose rate brachytherapy, Civasheet, which is an implantable device. There is, they've also talked about treatment of unruptured intracranial aneurysm using flow diverter stent. And right now they are just finishing up renal function monitoring, um, which is used to reduce nephrotic, um, I'm sorry, nephrotoxic medication, um, as well as this is a transdermal measurement and monitoring of glomerulofiltration rate or the GFR. So that's what I have so far. It's still going on, Chuck, and I would encourage people to listen. Lori, thanks for that report. What's going to happen tomorrow? Tomorrow they'll start with procedures, and then they'll then move through the diagnosis codes um, proposals. So they, they've quite a lot. They're scheduled to run from 9 to 5 tomorrow. So that will fill up um, a good portion of the day. I suspect they're probably going to go a little late tomorrow. Hey, Chuck, I have two cents for you. Um, okay. I think it's really important for people to take the opportunity to listen in or read through the agenda and make sure that you give your comments because they really do listen and that you can help guide of ICD-10. 
And the last yes, point would yes. be that you can get free CE credits for um, attending coordination and maintenance, even if you attend it virtually. Very good. Speaking of attending virtually, uh, Erica, we have a question from our friend, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. I think it's for Ellen. He asked, how do we get hospitals to realize the value in letting the coders review the record for the uh, social determinants of health since they are not CCs or MCCs and produce no direct revenue? Ellen? In response to uh, dear Dr. Kirsch's comment, this is one of the reasons that the suggestion is that there be some coding coalitions that start the process going to enhance the awareness of how the process needs to play out. I get this question a lot. We're not supposed to review. We're just supposed to finalize the codes, but this New documentation for social determinants. For the last year, we've been saying this. It calls on the concerted eyes and efforts of every member of the team. So that means that folks are going to have to do things a little bit differently and engage in dialogues to start discussions about drawing the connection between the documentation and the codes. It's a very different way of doing things, but, you know, as we know in our business, the only constant is change. Very good. Thanks, uh, Ellen, very much. Uh, thanks, Dr. Hirsch, for sending in that story. That's going to be a wrap for our 359th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panelists today, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, Alan Fink-Samnick, whom you just heard, and our special guest this morning. Uh, he was Tammy Combs and, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. And a programming note, be with us next Tuesday for a very important update on some of the most significant regulations to come from Washington. That's when Stanley Nockerson returns to the broadcast. In the meantime, of course, you can listen to us anytime, anywhere, on any device. It's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and, of course, Google Play. I hope you're going to be with me this coming Thursday for the live webcast on cardiovascular coding at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Remember, you can save 25 bucks when you enter the coupon code Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Tucked In Tuesday night, ten Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Tucked In Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.